This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Really glad to say that on the show today, I'm joined by Greg Boyd and William Lane Craig as we ask, is penal substitution central to Christ's atoning death on the cross? Well, many of us know the popular hymn, In Christ Alone. It includes that line, but on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Not all Christians are comfortable singing that line. And today we're discussing that doctrine of penal substitution, as defended by Christian philosopher William Lane Craig in his new book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. Opposite Bill on the show today is theologian Greg Boyd, teaching pastor at Woodland Hills Church in Minnesota. Uh, And Greg is a critic of penal substitutionary atonement. He says Christ's death on the cross is best understood in a Christus Victor model, that Christ overcame the powers of darkness in an act of sacrificial love that subverts the violent images of a wrathful God. Well, we'll be debating atonement theory today and why it matters. So welcome along to the show, both Bill and Greg. Great to have you both with me today. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, um, I'm so glad to get you both together. Um, I've been influenced by both of your work and uh, I've read both of you on these subjects around atonement. Um, Perhaps we'll just start with a a couple of introductions to you both. Bill, um, you've been very fruitful during this lockdown period. We've obviously spoken uh, nearer to the beginning of the lockdown, but um, not only have you had this book published, Atonement and the Death of Christ, you've been busy working on other things as well, haven't you? Yes, I just finished a book on the historical Adam, which is now in press. And I've begun now my final major work, I anticipate, which is writing a systematic philosophical theology. And I anticipate that this will be a five to 10 year project that I've embarked on during this sequestration. And so the big blocks of time it's afforded me have been very, very helpful. (laughs) Yes, I, I look forward to it. And how many years do you think that'll be in the making though, Bill? At least five. At least five. Gosh, I would be okay. thrilled if I could get it done in five. Right. Um, Greg, welcome back to the show. It's been a while since we, we last had you on. Um, you, of course, are in full-time ministry, as well as all the, the writing and other speaking and, and so on that you do. How, how has life been for you in, in, with this present coronavirus and lockdown in the last few months? Well, it's, too, it's 2020. It's, <laughs> it's been a sucky year, to be honest with you. I got to tell you. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I, you know the church has been going very well. I, I, I feel like we we've, we've been hit on all pistons. We didn't skip a beat and, yeah, on this. Uh, and there's even some kind of advantages to doing uh, you know Zoom ministries. It's expanded our reach quite a bit. So uh, things are overall going pretty good. Uh, but uh, it's been a miserable year. It's been uh, a very challenging one, that's for sure. In in all kinds. A lot of, of fronts. Yeah. Well, look, um, coronavirus aside, we're, we're going to be discussing something that obviously is, is fundamental to Christian belief, the death of Christ on the cross and how that pays for our sins. Um, Bill, maybe you could tell us what was the inspiration for this particular work and the, the body of study and research you did that brought us this book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. Tell mm-hmm. us a bit about that. One of the interesting phenomena of our age is the renaissance of Christian philosophy that's been going on over the last 50 years or so. And one of the most noteworthy features of this Renaissance is the entry by Christian philosophers into areas 
normally reserved for the systematic theologian. In areas like the Trinity and the Incarnation, some of the most important and creative and insightful work in recent decades has been done not by Christian theologians, but by Christian philosophers. One of the areas, however, that has remained underdeveloped is atonement theory. And for years, I have longed for my Christian philosophical colleagues to address this issue and to take up a robust defense of the classic Reformation doctrine of the atonement. And to my frustration, nobody has done so. And so I finally decided as preparatory to writing this systematic philosophical theology that I spoke of a moment ago, that I was just going to have to tackle the issue myself. And so I began to plunge into the study of the doctrine of the atonement, biblically, historically, and philosophically. And I have to tell you, Justin, I never anticipated the richness of the insights that that study would bring to me of this central doctrine of the Christian faith. I thought I understood the doctrine of the atonement. I've taught on it. But this study has revealed to me new areas of insight that I never had before. And so it's been a, a wonderful experience. I'm glad to hear that, Bill. Um, Greg, um, tell us a little bit about your overall reaction to the book. Um, obviously, it's coming from a different place from you, and you might want to sketch out how your thinking on the atonement has developed yourself over the years. Sure, sure, sure. Well, first, let me say uh, congratulations, Bill. I, I, it was a good book. I, I want to say that it's... Uh, uh, especially your the survey of all the different varieties. Uh, I was mm. unaware of most of that, um, and uh, the, the diversity of views uh, that also kind of presents a little bit of a challenge because it makes for a moving target. I mean, there's some folks in there that uh, don't even believe, don't even hold that God punished Jesus, who you classify as penal substitution. Um, and so, I may at the very start, I, I, I want to narrow it down a little bit to say that the only problem I have. Uh, is with the idea that God needs to be appeased to forgive. Uh, all the other varieties, I'm you know, okay with. But on the whole, I want to say that um, um, oh, the, the historical stuff was really insightful. And I, you know, I, I wasn't, to be honest with you, I wasn't excited about reading another book on the atonement because after a while, it feels like same old, same old, you know, it's, I don't care. But, but this is not same old. Uh, you, you really do carve new ground. Your stuff on Grotius was... Uh, I, got, I didn't, you know, the way you bust stereotypes, because yeah. you know, I, I, he's a moral government guy, and I didn't know that there was a penal substitution lane behind that. So I want to thank yeah. you. I, I really do appreciate, I, I love it when you read a book and you learn some things. Uh, it, that, that's really, really good. Um, I, I feel like the, in terms of just a general, okay, that was the positive, and here, here's the kind of critical part. It was a little bit of an odd experience, to be honest, because as I'm reading your book, I'm, I'm agreeing with so much of it, uh, and I think we put the pieces together kind, pretty much the same way, to have the same kind of portrait, and yet when I step back, we've got very different views. And, and the analogy I would use is like, have you ever had like a painting or a portrait or something, which when you frame it one way, you're like, oh, I really like that. You put a different frame on it, and it's like a different picture. And I, I think we frame things just differently. Um, the most fundamental difference, I, I, I would say, is that uh, for you, 
it, it seems like you, it, everything's framed in a legal context. Uh, you're, you're very big on the, you know, the, it, it's like a court of law analogy, God's the judge. You're, you're very uh, in, insistent that the forgiveness is like more, you see it like a, a pardon from a, from a king uh, rather than a personal kind of forgiveness thing. And so the, it's, a, it's a legal framework. And, and you talk about all the presence of, of the judicial metaphors and the judicial language um, it, it, you know, throughout, throughout the, the scripture. Um, but I, 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 everyone agrees that there's, there's both, you know, judicial and cultic uh, metaphors and, and language about uh, sin and punishment in scripture. But there's, there's one category of, well, so far as I can see, Bill, uh, I find myself being persuaded by those scholars who argue that, um, the dominant way of speaking about sin and punishment in scripture uh, is not judicial, but organic. And, and it, it, where, where sin, the punishment for sin is built into the sin itself. Um, and you've got you know, all these different kinds of sayings about, uh, you know, if, if you dig a hole for your enemy, you yourself will fall in it. Uh, violence will come back on your head. The violence that you have done will come back on you and horrify you. And, and so this intrinsic sort of judgment it seems to me, I'm thinking about like, you know, Stephen Davis well, and well, uh, uh, say Krasovic and, and Terence Freitheim, those scholars. Greg, Greg uh, so why, don't we, why, why don't we just um, put a pause on that and just, just oh, because yeah. what I think we should do before we come to some of those specifics, and, and I think okay. I'd love to, to dig into that, is, is perhaps just for Bill to sketch out very simply what, where he does land with the, sure. the, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, because obviously there may be some people watching or listening, Bill, who, 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 who aren't even sure exactly what that, that phrase means. So why don't we start right at the beginning in that sense, before we get into the, the, sure. the technicalities and, and just right. have you sort of lay out um, the groundwork here, Bill, what, um, uh, what, 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 do we mean by this view? This is the central view that you defend. It's not the only view you explain in the book, this penal substitution. Right. But, but and that's, that's, that's critical to my position. It seems to me that any adequate theory of the atonement needs to be a multifaceted theory that will include a variety of these New Testament motifs, like justification, uh, penal substitution, um, ransom theory, uh, moral influence, and so forth. And so any theory of the atonement that attempts to reduce the atonement to just one facet or motif is going to be incomplete and inadequate. And so I believe that penal substitution is one of the essential facets of a full-orbed and biblically adequate theory of the atonement. Uh, and and in in that, of course, um, you do though say in the book that you believe that penal substitution is, in a sense, the the core motif, if you will. Um, yes, um, gemologists call the central facet of a jewel uh, the table, and I do think that the table of uh, your atonement theory, that central facet that anchors the others, is penal substitution because it makes sense of so many of the other facets. Now, obviously, you've written a whole book that deals with this in great depth, but, but in a nutshell, is there a way that you would sum up what, what penal substitutionary atonement means, what, what, what that doctrine is? Yes, I think that 
Penal substitution is the doctrine that Jesus Christ bore the suffering for sin, which would have been our punishment had we borne it instead, and thereby he freed us from liability to punishment. And in that sense, that uh, is an essential part of what it is to be forgiven uh, to, to when we accept that, that sacrifice made by well, Christ on the cross. This connects with what Greg was talking about a moment ago. People would be surprised to know that there's a whole philosophical literature on forgiveness and the nature of forgiveness. And one of the insights of this literature is that there is a distinction between forgiveness and legal pardon. These are not the same thing. And I think that divine forgiveness of sins is much more akin to a legal pardon than it is to the kind of personal forgiveness that we extend to one another in personal relationships. Personal forgiveness does not absolve guilt or make a person into uh, a new creature. Legal pardon absolves the condemned criminal from guilt and constitutes him a new man. He is as innocent in the eyes of the law as if he had never committed the crime. And that's what divine forgiveness does for us. It's not simply a removal of God's wrath or emotional uh, anger with us. Far more, it is a divine pardon that absolves our guilt and reconstitutes us as new creatures or persons in God's sight. So before we come back to Greg to, to, to sort of give us uh, sort of his response to penal substitution, what, um, I mean, many people characterize it as, uh, and the problem that many people have with it is the idea that God punishes an yes. innocent party in place of us who yes. did deserve the punishment as it were. And they see that as somehow morally wrong, that, that how, can, how can that constitute justice um, in that sense? So, 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 well, is that the view that you take of what it represents, God punishing Jesus in our place? Well, notice the way I've framed or formulated the doctrine of penal substitution. Um, some penal substitution theorists, notably John Stott, has said we should never say that God punished his beloved son. Rather, penal substitution means that Jesus bore the suffering that would have been my punishment if it had been inflicted on me instead. It would have been my just desert. And by bearing that, that suffering, he thereby frees me from liability to punishment. So in fact, it is not an essential element of a penal substitutionary atonement theory that God punished Christ for our sins. That's open to the penal substitutionary theorist. Uh, that's one possibility, but it's not required. Uh, you, you can say instead that Christ bore the suffering that would have been my punishment, um, thereby freeing me from the liability to punishment. I, I, I can see that, yes, there is a, a, a difference there, potentially, between those two. Is, is that where you end up landing, Bill, would you say? Is, I mean, you're obviously keen to, to give a, an overview of all no the, I, I myself take the stronger view i think that uh christ did in fact bear the punishment for sin that we deserved 
But I don't want to rule out people like John Stott from being penal substitutionary theorists. Uh, and so the way the doctrine is formulated is an inclusive um, formulation that will allow you to affirm that Christ either was punished in our place or that he bore the suffering that would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us. Hmm. Greg, uh, you've, you've written this. Um, you, you've said that um, penal substitution makes it look as though God had to vent his wrath on Jesus in order to forgive us. Um, right. so, so for you, you do feel that this doesn't paint God the right way, this, this way of looking at substitution. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Let me first say that I, I also agree that the atonement's multifaceted. Uh, and I appreciate the table. I have never heard that before, that core thing. There. And it, it, that, that's what I would put Chris as Victor. I, I, I think that is what makes sense of the whole and informs the parts. And that's probably where we disagree. The, you know, the thing is, what Bill just said on penal substitution, and this was kind of the strange part when I'm reading this book, is that uh, I, could be, I, I would be classified as a penal substitution the theorist. Because while I frame it differently, I believe that Jesus stood in our place uh, and bore the death consequences of sin that we deserved. Uh, and yeah, that's how we're re re reconciled with God. The only part of it I've ever really had a problem with is the idea that God that retributive justice is an essential attribute of God, that all sin must be punished. And this goes to the legal framework again. Uh, I, when I talk about uh, us or Jesus bearing the, the death consequences of sin, I, that, is, that, that is what I think is the punishment of God, I, the judgment of God. It's the wrath of God that Paul talks about in Romans 1. Uh, he says the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. And then it says three times says that uh, God delivered them over to their reprobate hearts and all that. And I, so I see God in his mercy as, as hanging with us saying, don't go down this road because it naturally leads to death. This way of going, God is life. And so sin is, is rejecting God. So sin is death. You're going down a death road and God in his mercy tries to hang on to us saying, don't go down that road. But there comes a point where if he sees his mercy is just enabling us, uh, then God says, I have to turn you over uh, and, and uh, suffer the consequences of this. And that is, I, I think, the essence of the judgment of God. Um, so I, I, I frame it all more in organic terms rather than legal terms. But if, if, if the appeasing God's wrath is not part of it, then we can still discuss the different meanings of this, but uh, we're not as far apart as I thought we were going to be. Well, well that, that's very interesting to hear, but maybe it would help to tease out some of these terms Greg is using here, appeasing God's wrath. Firstly, what do you take to be the meaning of God's wrath? Um, I, I did mention that, that well-known line from In Christ Alone, um, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Um, what, what does that mean to you, Bill? Yeah. Well, I do think that God is incensed with sin. Um, if God were not angry with evil, he would be indifferent to the plight of all the victims of sin and injustice. And so I think that it's quite proper that a righteous God would be angry when evil is done and people are victimized. And he's not a callous, unfeeling, impassable God, I think. But at the root of God's wrath, I think, lies this notion of retributive justice. Uh, it's not just that he's angry, 
Rather, it is that his holiness and justice um, cry out for the just desert of sin, which is, I think, death. Death is both a consequence of sin, as Greg explained, but in the Old Testament, it's also a punishment for sin. Um, all the way back into the story of the Garden of Adam and Eve, you have this legal terminology that indicates that sin is a capital crime that deserves death. So sin is both, a, or rather death is both a consequence of sin in this organic sense, but it's also a punishment for sin in the legal sense. And we mustn't attenuate our theology by eliminating these multiple facets. They're all part of the big picture, and we neglect any one of them to our detriment. Mm. Greg, quick response before we go to a break. I'll try. Um, see, it seems to me, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I think it is consequence of sin. I think it's the punishment of sin. And I agree that it's expressed sometimes in judicial categories, but I think it's more fundamentally expressed in organic categories. But the organic seems to me to be the more fundamental. For example, if, if uh, you're speeding and you break the law, well, then you get a fine. Okay? Uh, a, 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 it's imposed on you. That's a judicial punishment, uh, the legal punishment. Uh, but if you're speeding, going down a hill that has got a sharp curve at the bottom, uh, and you, uh, because you're speeding, don't make that curve and end up getting in a crash and getting injured, maybe killed, well, see, there, that's an organic punishment, uh, an, an intrinsic punishment, because there's no connection between the fine and speeding. Uh, but there is a definite connection between going down this hill, speeding, and getting in a crash. And it seems to me that the reason you have the law is to warn people about the organic reality. Um, the law is not the more fundamental thing, I don't think. Uh, the, it, it's, it's in service to this reality. You do this and it ends up in death. Um, and so I, I just don't weight the, the legal terminology the, the way uh, Bill does. I think it's just indisputable that Paul's theology is suffused with legal terminology and the imagery of the courtroom uh, this is also prominent in the Old Testament. Old Testament Judaism was a, a religion of law. Uh, law and ancient Judaism are virtually synonymous. So these legal categories and legal motifs suffuse Judaism, and they pervade the Book of Romans uh, in Paul's doctrine of both justification and, and sin. And so we can't downplay these legal categories that we have sinned deserve to be punished for our sins, and that through the intervention of Jesus Christ, he has satisfied the demands of divine justice, thereby freeing us from our condemnation and liability to punishment. Before we get back into sort of this, this categories you've, you've described here of, of the legal versus organic way in which uh, sin is a punishment, um, I, I mean, you have spoken very strongly against penal substitutionary atonement. I was listening to a sermon of yours the other day, Greg, um, where, where you got very passionate about the way that you see that this myth of redemptive violence, you called it, this idea yeah. that you can make things right by, by killing someone, by, by creating that kind of blood sacrifice and so on. Um, and, um, and as I say, you, you've had this phrase frequently in writings that this idea that God had to vent his wrath on Jesus in order to forgive us is just a, a completely wrong way of viewing God and the atonement. So, so what, what, what are the forms of penal substitutionary atonement that you really have in mind? If, if as you say, 
in terms of what Bill's representing, you're just framing it slightly differently. And you could even call yourself a penal substitutionary uh, atonement sort of theorist if, yeah. if, if it was framed right. Well, under some of the descriptions that uh, the variety that uh, Bill lays out, and I was also surprised at, at how broad that was. Uh, but, uh, okay, so Bill said it just before the break uh, that, that uh, Jesus died to, I don't know exactly how you phrase it, but to appease or to satisfy the Father's wrath. And, and he uses that throughout the book. And that, that's the part, it alters your picture of God. It generates a number of uh, difficult questions. Bill does as good a job as I can be done in trying to answer these questions, like how is Jesus innocent and yet legally guilty, and how are we guilty yet legally innocent, and how does this uh, legal fiction or this pronouncement uh, allow God to forgive us? Um, and it, 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 all those are created because of that idea that retributive justice is an intrinsic attribute of God. It seems to me that that is... And I like to ask Bill this because I, I, at several points you've called it a caricature. Um, but what you present as a caricature struck me as the form of penal substitution that I was taught and that most of the people that I see is taught, like, that, that, like the students I teach and stuff. Um, and it's all about, here's an analogy that I was given, all right, when I was first a Christian. Uh, God's wrath, you know, we, we were sinners and God was about to condemn us, send us to eternal hell because his justice must be satisfied. Uh, but Jesus, and a, a preacher actually did this, I'm not kidding, had a hammer and was going to smash this glass. Uh, and like the wrath of God was going to come down and crush us. But Jesus says, no, I'll take the brunt instead. And, he, and so he pulls out from behind the pulpit a cookie sheet, and the cookie sheet catches the hammer and vibrates. And that's how we now can go free. Since, since the justice was satisfied by punishing Jesus, it doesn't need to be satisfied by punishing us for eternity. Though I will say I've never quite understood how his 30 or 36 hours on the cross or being dead is the just payment for eternal suffering. If, if how does that satisfy God's justice if justice demand that we would be damned eternally? Um, the whole you know, multitude, but that's a different issue. So is that a caricature, a complete caricature, Bill, or, or does that, you know, the idea that Jesus absorbs the wrath that, we, that was destined for us? I would agree with you, Greg, that God the Father does not vent his wrath upon Jesus. Rather, what he expresses is the just punishment for our sins. And here's why these legal motifs are so important. It's not that God is just emotionally angry. It's rather that we are guilty of capital offenses. We are like uh, criminals who have committed capital crimes and whose just desert is death. But God, out of his tremendous love for us, says, I will become incarnate and bear the death penalty for sin that you deserved so that you can go free and be cleansed and forgiven. So the incarnation and atonement of Christ is the supreme act of self-giving sacrifice on the part of God. It shows God's tremendous love for us, as well as his holiness and righteousness, which demands uh, punishment for sin justly deserved. Uh, can you get, you can get on board with that, Greg? Um, it, it's that odd experience I have in this book. Verbally, I can, but I frame it differently. It's I, like, 
in James, uh, when, when it says that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, it gives birth to death. Okay, so that's kind of organic. The relationship between punishment and sin is the relationship between conception and birth. If that being the case, what do you add to it by saying, oh, now God also has to punish? It, 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 it's there. There's nothing more for God to do, is there? Well, I, I think that what you add is a more adequate biblical view. As I said, these legal motifs suffuse Judaism, and they feature front and center in the book of Romans. I'm not even sure that in the book of James, that James is not talking about penalty, uh, death there as a penalty for sin rather than a consequence. I think it's both. It's both a consequence and a penalty. And we shouldn't try to make this an either or. It's, it's a both and, I would I say. Good. Do you have room in, do you have room in your atonement theory for the idea that Christ bore the suffering that would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us, thereby releasing us from liability to punishment. Yes. Yeah. But the difference for me in this, in this debate is, is who's doing the punishing in a sense, because I get the yeah. sense from you, you Greg, that this is an organic form of punishment. You say it's not God doing the punishment. It's well, it, it is its own punishment, but, but it, Bill, it, 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 it's a divine it, punishment and that God created this moral order. Right. But, 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 but Bill, do you, do you see God as having a sort of direct role in punishing either people or Jesus. Uh, well, yes, the I, I think that the fact that God's justice in the New Testament is in large measure what is called retributive justice, according to which the guilty deserve punishment. Uh, the fact that God's justice is retributive, I think, is so clear in that it's eschatological. That is to say, people are punished in the afterlife. Uh, they experience eternal separation from God, or if you will, annihilation, depending on your view. But in any case, at that point, it's too late for punishment to serve purposes of rehabilitation or deterrence or other goods that are uh, visualized by a consequentialist theory of justice. Eschatological justice can only be, it seems to me, retributive in nature. And so this shows that the demands of God's retributive justice um, are satisfied, I think, by uh, Christ's bearing the punishment for sin that we deserved. What's your take on retributive justice then, Greg? Um, what, like, if God is love, and that's the essence of God, and I think Bill agrees with that, I'm wondering how retributive justice can be, like... It seems to me that God is love. Everything God does is an expression of God's love. And, uh, I, and I just have never understood why see, it comes down to why is sin sin? And it seems, I would argue, sin is sin, and God hates sin. I agree with what Bill said about God's hatred towards sin. But he hates it because it kills us. It, 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 it's, and he loves us. Um, and, yeah, so... so it's the law isn't it's not something in and of itself it's uh um, it's there in service to something more fundamental and that's why i think framing it see when you frame everything in a legal way it almost seems like 
you turn a love story into a legal story and, and you do talk about the love of God and you even get excited about it. Yeah, and I got excited right. about it with you, but, but uh, then there's all these, these legal, you know, the whole book's on these legal terminology. And I, I was amazed at how you dug into these court cases going back to the 18th century, you know, it's showing analogies about how, you know, an innocent person could be guilty or whatever. You've got way more patience in time than I do. Cause I, I could not wait through that stuff. Uh, but see, that all comes because it's framed primarily as a legal problem. The atonement's like a legal problem. And, and for me, it's, you know, the whole thing comes down to a, the bridegroom, uh, his, his betrothed bride has gotten kidnapped and, by this, and seduced by this uh, evil person who's intent on killing her. And so God does everything that could possibly be done, uh, going to the full extent of the cross, whatever, to then free her from that, that uh, uh, seducer and to woo her back and win her back and restore her. That's the, the core love story that I see going on with the atonement. Uh, and it's got legal dimensions to it, but uh, if you make it, if that becomes the center, then it seems to me you've turned it. It's to, this is where uh, I, I disagree with you, Bill, that, that uh, we should see the uh, forgiveness that comes about as a result of the cross as primarily a pardon, a legal pardon uh, from a king. Um, you know, it's, 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 so my, my friend Paul Eddy pointed this out, showed me, turned me on to some articles that, that had shown that some of the most ferocious judicial language is used as Yahweh is confronting his unfaithful bride. I think Ezekiel 16 here, you find it in Hosea. And so you have got the, the uh, judicial language being used, and yet it's put in the context of this marriage. It's an intimate marriage thing. And so that is a personal thing. Um, and it, it, it seems to me that, that the, the bridegroom metaphor, which is run throughout scripture, and Jesus comes and he's now Yahweh, the bridegroom, looking for a, a, a bride to betroth. Uh, that is as intimate as it gets, as, as personal as it gets. And so I guess I'm not, I, I know the distinction between pardon and forgiveness, but as it pertains to the atonement, I, I'm, I'm just not seeing uh, how, how that applies. Hmm. It seems to me it's, well, see, this is the wonderful thing about the atonement, of, as I've tried to explicate it, is that it enables us to unite these two motifs of Christus Victor, the rescue operation of the beloved and so forth, with the absolution of guilt and the expiation of sin. And the one without the other is incomplete and unsatisfactory. If you have simply the personal, redemptive, Christus Victor motif, what you don't get there is absolution of guilt. You, we, we need to have something that does away with our guilt and constitutes us innocent and new creations before God. So it's very interesting, Greg, the great... 19th century uh, German theologian Albrecht Ritschel wrote a massive book on atonement and justification. And to my shock, oh really? Okay. He, he doesn't begin, he doesn't begin the book with the church fathers. He begins with Anselm. And the reason he says is that in the church fathers, because of their um, uh, adherence so much to the Christus Victor motif, there's virtually nothing about reconciliation. 
It does not explain how sinful, guilty people are reconciled to the holy God. We have to wait until Anselm for that. So what Ritchell's example shows is that focusing on just one facet to the neglect of the others is going to leave us with an incomplete uh, atonement theory and therefore an inadequate atonement theory. We want to have both the ransom and rescue redemption motif along with the satisfaction of divine justice motif. I, I'm just questioning why you need the satisfaction of divine justice motif. Why, you know, it, it's, and maybe this is part of the character, but, you know, I was taught that the all holy God simply cannot accept sinners uh, as they are. Um, and that's why he has to satisfy his justice by, he's got to punish somebody. And so Jesus becomes the way that that, that uh, gets uh, taken care of. Um, but Jesus hangs out with sinners all the time and he's got incarnate. It doesn't seem like he's got a problem with that. Um, and you find God forgiving people all the time in the Bible uh, without needing to have a sacrifice or punish somebody. Um, why, oh. why, why does that, and commands us to forgive without expecting payment. Um, and yet God doesn't. It, it's like uh, God in the end, yes, he pardons us, but he never can forgive freely. He, he, he has to collect on the debt. And I just don't see why that is the case. Why can't the husband whose wife has betrayed him, why, why can't forgiveness be the cleansing in itself? Does, some, does he have to vent his anger at what she did on somebody else? It seems to me that love itself is redemptive. Love itself is reconciling. Love itself cleanses us. And there's more going on than, like, I, we haven't talked about our, how we're placed in Christ. And then Christ share, you know, how, how we participate in Christ. Uh, yes. So I, I grant that there's more that needs to be said about it, but I just don't get that the that the, his justice has to be satisfied with a punishment, and that's the most grievous part to me because that's what places the myth of redemptive violence at center stage in uh, Christian atonement theory. And you know, uh, Anthony Bartlett wrote this book called Cross Purposes, where he I think makes a fairly compelling case that it's not a coincidence that. When Anselm's theory became dominant, um, that uh, it's shortly after that, that we begin to see Christian violence beginning to escalate. Uh, whether that's you accept that or not, I think it's, especially in this climate where everyone's got paranoia about religious violence anyways, and justifiably, to have violence as the way that God solves the ultimate problem of the universe is, is uh, I think, unfortunate. Whereas in the Christmas Victor view, the enemy is always the powers uh, and and in, in the early church, uh, that is precisely what allows us to not make enemies out of other human beings. And so, yeah, that, that's a major concern I have with penal substitution. Go, go ahead, Bill. Yeah. Well, the theme runs all the way through the Old Testament with respect to the Levitical animal sacrifices, that the, a death needs to occur, but the animals are sacrificed instead of people. Animals bear the fate that the sacrificer deserves. Uh, and so you have this substitutionary death of the animal. Uh, and th these sacrifices were offered in the tabernacle and the temple for centuries in Judaism. But it's a conviction of the New Testament authors that the blood of bulls and goats can't really take away sins. To do that, you needed 
the divine son of God who would uh, die in our place as the ultimate lamb of God. And in Jesus' last supper, he prefigures his death precisely in these sacrificial terms uh, and quotes from Isaiah 53 as well, which is, I think, the central place in the Old Testament where you have uh, penal substitutionary suffering of the righteous servant for the people. And Jesus sees himself as the righteous servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53, who gives his life as a sacrifice for uh, sinners. So to, to get absolution of guilt, we need a pardon. We need more than just personal forgiveness. That can amend um, our feelings toward one another, but it doesn't deal with retributive justice and our guilt before God, which needs to be expiated. That was the purpose of these sacrifices, was to symbolically expiate people's guilt and so constitute them righteous before God. And Christ is the ultimate Lamb of God who expiates our sins and therefore gives us absolution. Yeah. Well, we have uh, uh, different takes on uh, the animal sacrifices, uh, but that could really lead us into a, a I'll just say this, that, that uh, I read those more in terms of a covenantal context, and just as God, I think retooling a practice they were already doing, uh, he accommodates it. He says in Levit Leviticus 17, don't go sacrificing the goat demons anymore. If you're going to sacrifice, sacrifice to me. And, and, uh, but he retools it, I think, to teach covenantal lessons primarily about that. Um, breaking covenant leads to death. I, I think that's the, the main lesson of the whole thing. Right. right. And a covenant and, is a legal notion. Sure. And so that, that, that cultic language is used throughout. I grant that. And I'm totally on board with substitution. Uh, see, it, I see the substitution more like, um, you know, if, if I see a bus coming down the road and you're distracted in the middle of the road playing with marbles or with your child yeah. or something, and I go and jump and push you out of the way and then I get hit instead, I died as your substitute. Uh, yes. that, that's what would have befallen you. I see Jesus doing that. Uh, to uh, he, he takes, he absorbs the full death consequences of yeah, no, all, all you have to add, Greg, is that hitting, being hit by the bus was your just desert. Well, you, you legally justice. deserve that, and Jesus jumps in the way instead. Uh, see, that, that, that's why. What does the legal add to it? I, I, I just don't. Why is God bound by a law like that? He's God, you know. It's, it's. I, I must punish sin. I, I, Bill, I think you did as good a job as can be done uh, in trying to make sense of uh, these the legal fiction. What happens on the cross? But at the end of the day, I'm still left puzzled as to how God can consider Jesus guilty, even though He knows He's innocent, and consider us innocent even though he knows we're guilty and that that somehow oh. satisfies his justice which allows him to forgive uh, i'm wondering what is the reality there i like we're, we're not really righteous but he considers right. us that uh how does that work okay go ahead bill now in the philosophical portion of the book, I deal extensively with these very questions. These questions that Greg raises are not biblical or theological, they're philosophical. And I suggest two mechanisms 
that are prominent in the Anglo-American justice system that would account for this. One, as Greg just indicated, is the use of legal fictions. And I give some wonderful examples in the book of how in British courts, uh, the justices have adopted legal fictions in order to deal with real world problems. And so one way to think of this would be that God adopts for the purposes of this action, the legal fiction that Jesus actually committed these sins. Now he didn't, but as in a court of law, you can adopt a legal fiction for the purpose of an action. God could adopt that legal fiction. And as a result, then Jesus would be declared guilty uh, for our sins and thereby justly bear the punishment for our sins. Um, and his being punished for our sins in that case is real. The satisfaction is real. The only thing that would be fictitious there would be that Jesus actually did the sins. And we all would say that Christ cannot sin. And so that part is fictitious. But then the other element I appeal to, Greg, does not appeal to legal fictions. This appeals to something in the law called vicarious liability. And it's based upon an old legal principle called respondeat superior, which is roughly translated, the master is answerable. And in British and American law, wrongs committed by a servant can be imputed to the master so that the master is responsible for wrongs done by his servant in his role as a servant. And on the modern scene, this has led to a principle of vicarious liability between employers and employees, right. whereby the wrongs committed by an employee in the discharge of his duties can be imputed to his employer, even though the employer is absolutely blameless for those uh, wrongs. Uh, and this shows us that the notion of imputed wrongdoing is not at all something that is foreign to our Anglo-American justice system, both in civil law and in criminal law. And so I think that one way to understand the uh, penal substitution of Jesus would be that God uh, holds Jesus vicariously liable for our wrongdoing in virtue of his relationship to us, and thereby can be punished justly in our place. When I was reading through that, your very detailed historical assessment stuff, when it came to like this vicarious thing, it always seems to me that the, uh, the law there is in service to something more fundamental. For example, why would an employer be fined for the wrongs of an employee? Uh, isn't it at the bottom, at rock bottom, isn't it because the employer should that their employees better to keep better mind. There's always something real oh. there. It's not just made up or decree or just asserted, is it, in a court of law? No, you're, you're quite right that it does serve broader societal ends. Uh, it, it, it serves to protect society from wrongs that can be done. But in, in these cases, it's very important to understand that the employer is utterly blameless in the matter. He's not guilty of negligence or complicity or failure to supervise. Uh, that's very clear. So um, 
what the illustrations show is that the idea of imputation of wrongdoing to an innocent third party is a non-controversial and widely applied principle in Anglo-American justice. But, but it sounds to me, Greg, like your, your problem with this is, is that you don't think that you can simply map legal fictions and that what happens as we kind of make specific laws uh, in this instance onto the atonement. You, you feel that's too much of a stretch? Well, I, more fundamentally, I, I think it's that there's, we, anyone who would just hold a, a employer responsible for what their employees, I grant that he may be blameless uh, personally with stuff, but there's always a wrong, there's a reason for it. Like in general, employers should have better uh, supervision of their employees. It, there's something there. It's not just a decree. And so I'm wondering what is the, what is the rationale that, that explains this kind of vicarious suffering that, that Jesus did, if yeah. talking in legal terms. Because I, I, it seems to me, Bill, like it's just a decree. God just says, I, will, I just decree you to be righteous. I decree you to be guilty. And it doesn't have, unlike court of laws in real life, it doesn't have any reality that explains it. It's just sort of a decree. It feels arbitrary. I, I'm just going to consider you righteous. And then that self-satisfies his justice. It's like, how does that satisfy justice? It seems, I, I'm not seeing the justice. Well, it's satisfied. See, it's, I can it's see satisfied. the justice in a court of law because mm -hmm. of the, 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 the rationale for it. I don't see it in the penal substitution theory. Well, if Jesus is held to be vicariously liable for our sins, then even though he is personally virtuous, he's declared legally guilty and therefore liable to punishment. So that God's uh, punishing Jesus for our sins is something that's perfectly compatible with the justice of God. And the motive for it is God's love for us. He wants to find a way to rescue us from sin that does not compromise the demands of his own justice and holiness. So that just as God's love is essential to his nature, so his justice and holiness are essential to his nature. And the, the trick is to figure out how both can be fully expressed without compromising one or the other. And that's where I think the theory of the atonement is so beautiful in that it shows us how the justice and love of God are both fully expressed without compromise. Yeah. See, we, it, it, it comes down to, I think, and Justin raised this earlier, like, like, you know, who's doing the punishing? Or I guess I would say, who, who demands a pound of flesh for every sin? I'm thinking here of, you know, Chronicles of Narnia. No. Uh, and it's no. the witch who says that Edmund must suffer because, uh, because she says, for every you know, treasonous act, I get a pound of flesh, or I get my, my justice. And I think that's how, you know, when, when Jesus dies on the cross, in my view, uh, that is the perfect revelation of God. That we, he goes to the unsurpassable extreme of even becoming our sin and becoming our curse, uh, experience of separation from God. Uh, that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God actually enters into his own antithesis, which is as far as God could have possibly gone. And that perfect expression, revelation of God's love, and that it's like a bomb set off in the, in the kingdom of darkness. Uh, the power and wisdom of the cross is what uh, causes the kingdom of darkness to self-implode. 
And so in Colossians 2, in Colossians 2, uh, Paul says that the, the death of, when, when Jesus died, everything that was written against us was nailed to the cross, abolished, and in doing that, he disarmed the powers and made an open mockery of them. It, it seems to me that's showing that it's the, you know, the accuser is the one who's saying you must pay for your sins. Uh, the Inspector Chevert of, of the cosmic realm, as it were. Whereas God, I think, is, he's not, that's why he can say uh, God's not holding anyone's sin against them. Like 2 Corinthians 5.19, anyone. Um, because uh, all that was written against us, the enemy had on us, because it's our sin that puts him in, in, in bondage to this, uh, it, it's been obliterated. The love of God has triumphed over judgment. The source of justice is not Satan. It's God himself, God's holiness and perfect righteousness are the source of divine justice that demands punishment for sin rightly deserved. And so we what we need to find is a way for God's essential justice and love to both be fully expressed without compromise. Yeah. I, I agree that, that God is the source of all true justice. The question is, who's the one that demands uh, the pound of flesh? Uh, I think God can just forgive. I, I think Satan is the one who says you must pay. Can I respond to that quickly? No. Uh, <laughs> remember, as I explained in the book, that there are penal substitution theorists uh, who hold that God's choosing to satisfy divine justice by Christ's substitutionary punishment is contingent. Right. That uh, Hugo Grotius is a perfect example of this. God could have just chosen to forgive, but he has chosen substitutionary punishment because of the great benefits to be won by that self-giving sacrifice, such as exhibiting in the clearest way his hatred of sin and in the deepest way his tremendous love for mankind. So Grotius would agree that God didn't have to do it this way, but he would simply say that God had good reasons for choosing to do it this way. We, it's been a fascinating discussion, gentlemen. I'm yeah. sorry that our, t our time is drawing to a close. We, we've covered such a lot of interesting ground here. Um, just, just as we close out, what, why is it important to get this right? I mean, I can imagine a lot of people, um, perhaps some of the non-Christians, especially who listen to my show, folks, <laughs> thinking, uh, uh, isn't this angels dancing on pinheads? You know, what, why does this matter? Um, but Greg, maybe you want to start on that and we'll finish with Bill. Yeah, for me, and it's important, I think, to always reiterate, that uh, Bill and I agree on the basic same scenario, that God, out of his love, became a human being, gave all he could give in order to die in our place as a representative, in order to, for us to be reconciled to God and free from Satan and all the rest. So we agree on the basic narrative, but it's about how to understand sort of the mechanism of it, if you will. And, um, um, mm. and so my main concern is, number one, I, I think the most important fact in anyone's life is what is your mental conception of God? What really do you conceive of with God? Because we, uh, your passion for God will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God. And, and I don't doubt that Bill has a way of putting it together where it doesn't see, it, it seems like it magnifies God's beauty. Uh, it didn't have that effect on me or many of the people that I know who, hold, who once tell that view. Because it, 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 I can't, it seems like there's this father there that has got to punish. And, and 
G, I mean, this is why Luther like really loved Jesus, but was kind of terrified of the father, right? Because um, his father could, if it wasn't for Jesus, he would send us to hell for all eternity. And so I worry about people's, the beauty of their conception of God being compromised. And then, as I said earlier, I am very concerned with the, the, the myth of redemptive violence. An act of violence solves the biggest problem in the universe because if that's good enough for God, it's good enough for us. And uh, we, we don't need more encouragement in that area. What, what, why do you believe it's so important to get this theology of atonement right, Bill? Because this is the central doctrine of Christianity. It is right at the heart of what the Christian gospel is. Christ died for our sins. That's our central affirmation. And so I think it's vital that we uh, understand that doctrine. And then also, Justin, be able to defend it against those who would object to it. Ultimately, I do often feel like we, we can go so far, but ultimately, aren't we dealing in some sense, Bill, with something that is a huge mystery? How, how much can we, within, you know, 300 pages or whatever, get mm -hmm. to get, you know, really understand what the, the, the fullness of the atonement? I think what we can do is we can offer a coherent and plausible theory of the atonement that survives the objections brought against it. So it can remain mysterious, but at least what we can do is say, here is a plausible theory that is philosophically coherent and biblically consistent. And if you've been able to do that, I think then you've succeeded. Greg and Bill, thank you so much. It's been, it's been a very, very good natured, as I expected it to be anyway, um, discussion. I, I really appreciate it. And let me say again, that uh, whether you're a penal substitution theorist or not, Bill's book is well worth reading. Uh, and it, it, the, just the way you blow apart stereotypes and misconceptions we have of certain people, that's worth uh, the price of the book right there. And uh, Bill, make sure that when you send me my commission check, you send it to my personal yeah. address and not to my church because they'll think it's an offering, all right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, well, well, that's very good. Um, I know you've got a new book out as well, Greg, uh, on the Bible, uh, which uh, I'd love to bring you back on for. Inspired so. Imperfection, yeah, have me uh, in, Inspired Imperfection, we'll, we'll get you I on. You made Bill on that, that'd be a good maybe, one. Maybe, maybe it's, 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 uh, it's on the issue of inerrancy, uh, okay. that one. So, so we'll, ah. we'll, we'll, we'll maybe make that another one. But um, for the moment, um, that's the book we've been talking about today, yep. Atonement and the Death of Christ, an exegetical, historical and philosophical exploration by William Lane Craig. It's available now. I'll make sure there are links from today's show, plus links to both my guests where you can find out more. But for the moment, Bill and Greg, thank you for joining me. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.